The official time. It's 8.59. 858, 858, AT&T time. 8.59, Verizon time. Verizon time. It's Verizon versus AT&T here. Well, we'll give it another minute or two. (laughs) Did y'all get the free coffee that was out there? (laughs) We talked about putting a sign that said donuts on the door (laughs) to attract people. This is more than we thought was going to be here, though. It's not bad. Kind of a shame everybody's sitting in the back. I know. If anybody wants to move forward, we're very nice people. I mean, don't ask any of our fellow Texans about that, but you know. All right, here comes one brave person. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Lynn's moving up. Oh, there's a couple. Okay, Natalie's here now. So. Oh, we, we guilted Lynn. All right. She's not in the front row, though. <laughs> Well, mm-hmm. should we do this? Let's let's do it. Get her down. Good morning. Um, I feel like you all deserve a prize because it's the first session of the last day, and it was a late night. And it's raining. So thank you so much for coming. We really appreciate it. Um, my name is Melissa Pricer, and you are in the session Passing the Torch, One Museum's Experience. So um, now's your chance to exit if you do not want to talk about leadership transitions and succession planning, which um, both Gary and I feel is a topic that has not been discussed enough, um, both between the generations and um, with those that are currently in leadership positions as well. So my name is Melissa Pricer, and I am currently the president and executive director of Dallas Heritage Village. I'll let Gary introduce himself a little bit later, but he is the former executive director and president of Dallas Heritage Village, hence the uh, theme of of today. I want to explain briefly what Dallas Heritage Village is, because I know not all of you are familiar with our museum. We're an immersive history museum just south of downtown Dallas. Um, Literally, there's a ring of highways around downtown Dallas, and one of those highways is our northern border. Um, We have about 30 historic buildings that have been moved to the site that was the very first um, city park in Dallas, and our time period is 1840 to 1910. Um, It's a very interesting neighborhood, but that is a topic for another um, session. But we have an annual budget of just under a million dollars, four full-time employees, about 20 part-time. I was hired there in 2004 as the program educator, and six job titles, and 10 years later, I was the executive director. I think I also had four office moves. Um, So yes, you can move up within an institution, but it may actually require you moving around all over the place. Um, So today we're going to kind of go back and forth about how we did this along with just some general lessons on um, or ideas to take forward on how to both start the conversation, um, some advice for those that may be thinking about moving on from their institution, as well as some advice for those that may someday want to be an executive director. Um, The other thing that we really want to emphasize today is... um, the, the main key, I think, to all of this is you've got to put the institution first. Um, this wasn't about an ego thing. This was, was putting the institution first and what was best 
for Dallas Heritage Village. So I'm going to take it over or turn it over to Gary. And again, we're going to be going back and forth quite a bit um, and let him introduce himself a little bit and kind of what got this whole process started for us. This will be a little bit informal. Um, well, I'm Gary Smith, as Melissa said, um, former uh, president and uh, executive director at Dallas Heritage Village. I uh, am currently um, program officer for Texas History Projects at the Summer Lee Foundation, which is uh, located in Dallas. And that, that we'll explain later, that ended up playing a, a key part uh, in our transition. Uh, I'm just going to say a few words about transition planning or succession planning uh, as, as we uh, define it. Uh, succession planning has been having its moment lately. It's been talked about, uh, Melissa, as Melissa said, not nearly enough, but the topic is broached. I think it's more a matter of people feeling guilty uh, that they're not talking about it, and as they should be. Um, in large part because of the number of baby boomers, and I'm certainly in, uh, a good representative of uh, the baby boomer generation. There's so many of us approaching retirement age. There's been lots of uh, nonprofit literature that's been sounding the alarm beginning several years ago, and uh, I got a kick out of some of it because there were scary terms like the looming wave of baby boomer retirements that was going to leave a leadership vacuum, uh, and scary statistics like nearly one-third of New England nonprofit leaders say they plan to retire in two years, and then of those, 60% of those organizations had no idea how they are going to do the succession. So there's been a lot of talk about it uh, and a little bit of hyperbole, but that aside, there's also a legitimate worry that the pool of in-house candidates, people like Melissa, who might be able to follow and fill the leadership vacuum, um, there's a legitimate worry that a lot of those people have maybe moved on because baby boomers have not, in fact, uh, gone ahead and retired. So there could be a, a generational leadership uh, gap there. But this is not just a generation issue. It's actually a, a larger issue. It's more than just asking baby boomers to please hurry up so that uh, Generation X and Millennials can take over. And I know Melissa and I uh, feel the same way on this. Succession planning is actually, we think, the responsible thing for any executive director to be doing to initiate with their boards, no matter what age group they're in. So uh, no matter what age group they're in, no matter what age group you're in, our, uh, one of the things we're going to urge today is begin planning because you need to have your institution's interests at heart, and that needs to be up front. Uh, we both feel that we owe it to our organizations. We owe it to the museum profession to do smooth leadership transitions, and there's enough examples of unsmooth leadership uh, transitions out there. For any generation of leaders, one of the measurements of leadership really should be what kind of situation you turn over to your successor. 
And so for long-term people like I was, uh, we have a responsibility to work with our organizations, and this means especially with your board, to uh, affect a graceful uh, transition. Let me go ahead and get into my personal. Okay. Sure, yeah. Or it would be better for your timeline. Just, just keep I'll talking. I'll just go ahead just here. Okay. Told you this is going to be informal. <laughs> uh, well, here's how I got into it. Because um, you got into it before I did. Sure. There you go. By, by the very nature <laughs> of it. Uh, my personal outline, I uh, arrived at Dallas Heritage Village in December of 1995. And this was my second job as an executive director. Um, and I loved it right from the start. I loved working at this museum. I loved being the director. And I came in with the idea of being a long-term director, in part for personal reasons and in part because there had been so much turmoil in the years before I got there. Uh, when, by the time I was hired in uh, late 1995, um, Dallas Heritage Village had just recently fired their director. Uh, there had been a long-term director who had retired. Uh, staff members promoted into his position he left after two years. Then they hired an interim director, hired a full-time director, fired her after six months, another interim director, and then I came. So I really felt at that point that one of the best things I could do would be to provide a sense of permanency and stability. And so that's how I did it. And I plunged into the job with that in mind. And so I went through what I now think of as the boom, boom 90s. It's a great time. The economy was booming, and we were growing, and, and things were really happening. And then we had the recession of 2001 after 9-11, and we had another recession in 2008. So we had, you know, the boom and bust uh, cycles. Um, but through it all, I really had fun with it. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, so we fast forward to 2012, and at that point, I still loved my job, but I had been there 17 years as executive director. I was turning 60. I had just gone through a cancer scare uh, for, for me, which fundamentally changes how you look at things. I had just guided the museum through the second recession, and this last recession was really hard. It was brutal. We cut our budget by a third. We reduced our full-time staff from 12 to 4 um, just to make ends meet. I felt like I was spending all my time trying to convince board members to do things they really didn't want to do anymore. Um, and I was not interested in just hanging on uh, for retirement, which some of my colleagues have talked about doing. I just reached the point where personally and professionally I felt like it was time for a change. I was not burned out, but I did not want to get burned out. But most importantly, I still cared about the museum. And part of my sense of responsibility was a genuine conviction that the museum needed new leadership. I just thought it was just time for somebody else to take on that, that leadership. And so I felt like it was my duty to uh, help start a, a transition. I think at this point I'm going to let you do the timetable, and then I'll come back with uh, some of my key points. 
So it's the fall of 2012, and Gary's like, let's have lunch. I'm like, okay. And we go to lunch, and he looks at me. He's like, so what do you think about you taking over and running this place in two or three years? And my first thought was, what? And my second thought was like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to learn to fundraise. And then my next thought was, no, I, I can't I can't do this. Um, I had certainly thought about being an executive director at some point. I mean, at this point, I had been at the museum in ten year, for 10 years, um, had had increasing responsibility. Um, most of the staff was reporting to me. Um, so I thought about it. But my thoughts always about being executive director was that I was going to go to someplace smaller and less complex as that first step. Because Dallas Heritage Village is is not an easy, it's complex. There's 30 buildings to take care of, and we have animals. We literally work with a couple of asses. <laughs> Donkeys. Um, anyway, so we, just, we talk about it, we think about it, and at this point, Gary decides to go ahead and name me associate director and start putting me in places where I'm interacting a lot more with the board. Um, it wasn't that I didn't know the board. Um, I have been attending full board meetings for years. We've always had the kind of um, environment that if staff members want to go to a full board meeting, there's no problem with that. Um, but I certainly hadn't been going to the executive board meetings, which is where the real work of the organization takes place. Um, this was also where we had the first major speed bump. Um, when I was promoted above a colleague who we had been on the same level for a couple of years, she did not take that very well. Um, she realized later, and she is still with the organization, that she didn't want to be an executive director. It wasn't a case of, of me being chosen over her. I think it was just a, a, an instant knee-jerk kind of reaction. Um, I am younger um, than she is, and I think that was part of it, too, that we were on the same level. And then this young whippersnapper um, gets promoted above her. So that did not go well, and that did take a while to heal. But by the time I was named executive director, spoiler alert, obviously, um, it, it was okay, but it took a while. And I think she also had to realize that being, becoming an executive director was not something that she wanted to do. And I think that's also an important thing for those of you that are thinking about it. Um, being an executive director is not the na necessarily what everyone wants to do or should do. It's not necessarily the natural progression of a career path. Um, so in June of 2013, we presented the succession plan to the board. Now, behind the scenes, what had been going on is Gary had applied for a major grant from the Semerley Foundation to do a study, which, did you talk about that at ASLH last year or not? No. Maybe not. Anyway, you may have heard about it. It's been on, like, the blog and thing. The Semerley um, Commission on a study on the sustainability of historic organizations. So he applied for the grant to do that, which would have reduced him to part-time status. So half of his time would have been working on this major research study, and half of the time would be reducing his role at Dallas Heritage Village so that then we would have a transition so that I wasn't just thrown into the deep end without a life jacket. Um, because it was a grant submission, we did not tell the entire board that we were going that route. And so um, we shared that we had gotten this grant and this is what we would like to do. And in that initial letter, um, our board chair, his name is Don, um, said, and what we'd like to do is when Gary takes this reduced role in January, because it was, you know, grant periods and all that good stuff, to have Melissa become executive director. Um, 
That didn't go over well with everyone. Um, we had a few board members that were, um, I think, they were kind of surprised, number one. I mean, Gary had been there for 18 years, and and I think my Texan friends will back me up. People really like this guy, and, and I think that um, the board had gotten so comfortable with him and so confident in him that the thought of Gary leaving just, that would never happen. Does that sound about right? That that just wouldn't, wouldn't happen. So there were some board members that their objection was that there didn't seem to be enough process going into this. They wanted more of a role in making this decision. The timing was also not great. Um, I'm sure you guys have heard Texas is hot. And if you're a board member, that means you have money, which means you leave Texas in the summer. Um, we don't really meet as an organization um, in July or August for sure. So this, this letter went out in June, and then there wasn't time, there wasn't a good opportunity to have a real meeting um, to discuss. So there was a lot of reaction going on. And Don decided, just go ahead and name me in June interim executive director, and that would just smooth things right over. Um, well, then some board members were like, well, Melissa can just be interim for the entire grant period, which was two years, and then Gary will come back and be executive director again. And my response to this is, no way am I going to be interim for two years. I'm not going to be able to get anything done. Um, so that's where we were. And then we get to September 2013, which was the first board meeting, executive board meeting after the big announcement. And um, I'm sure all of us have been in bad board meetings. Um, this was my worst board meeting ever. Um, we were presenting a budget, and then they were going to um, go into executive, uh, executive session to vote on me not, no longer being interim. Um, the budget was not approved. And part of the reason why was that there was the other thing that was going on was we had a rental tenant that had given their six months notice, which meant we had an $80,000 gap in our budget to fill. And so I think part of the issue there was just this, this young person is taking over with no experience and we had this huge gap and oh my God. The other thing that did not help is someone was at ASLH for the meeting and wasn't there to help. He does admit that was a mistake because then he called and he's like, so, and he's at some evening event and he's like, so how did things go? Are you executive director now? I'm like, no. <laughs> I immediately went to somewhere and had a few drinks. I can't imagine why. No, it was, it was, it was so bad. Um, and, and my experience was, um, deeply, deeply questioned that I started thinking, okay, when do I, start looking for a job. That was, I mean, clearly this is not going to happen, um, and I need to start planning my exit, because the other thing I think that's important to remember is, for anyone that's been in an institution for a while, there's going to be a transition, whether you're at the top or you're middle manager or whatever. So I start thinking about job hunting. And I also am making, prepare, preparing myself to head to Shaw, which if you've been hanging around with ASLH for any period of time, you have probably heard some mention of Shaw. It's a seminar for historical administration, but now it's got this longer name. It's like developing history leaders. So I had, when, when Gary first said, 
hey, do you want to run this place? I thought I need to learn a lot more. I had spent a long time at Dallas Heritage Village. We're a great organization, but I knew that there, I needed to broaden my experience in some way. And so Shaw seemed like the right thing. I could start building a national network. Um, none of my educator friends were yet taking a similar path. Um, so I knew I needed some friends because this was going to be very, very different. So I head to Shaw. Um, the timing really could not have been better for the organization or for me personally. Um, I went in thinking, I want to cuss, but that seems inappropriate since we're being um, recorded. I went in thinking there's no way I can do this. Like, I just, there's just, I'm not ready. There's no way I'm going to, you know, January, I'm going to need to look for a job. I left. My confidence was renewed. I was like, I can do this. We're going to talk about this. I'm going to make the board make up their mind so one of us knows what's going on. Um, Gary, this was good for Gary, too, because he realized that he is really done done being an ed like he he you know it was only a month but he was like i i am done i'm tired of dealing with staff you know it's it's time to do something else the other thing and this is where transition stuff does happen at all levels of a museum is my staff also learned that they can make their own decisions and they don't have to ask me a question before they do everything and I know it was hard for the staff that was below me that was moving up as I was moving up because it can't be easy to have your boss having done your job previously. Um, but it gave them a chance to build their confidence as well because I just wasn't there. I, mean, I wasn't easily able to be contacted. Um, so that helped a lot with the transition below me as well. Um, so I get back. And, and I want to have a meeting very quickly with, with Don and Gary and say, when are we going to put this before a vote? And throughout all of this and all of the turmoil with the board, I had repeatedly said, do you put, out, put up a job notice and see, see what you get? Or, you know, maybe you need to pretend like you don't know me and interview me. Or maybe you need to let me speak on what I think the vision for the museum is, just so the board could start seeing me as someone besides the educator. Um, and so I asked Don to think, and Don's like, no, we're not doing that. So I decided that I would have lunch with my chair-elect, Kelly, who she had had her own job turmoil that actually made the national news um, that fall. So she had not been real engaged with the organization. So we had lunch and I said, so has Don been keeping you posted on, on the leadership transition? I said, no, she said no. And I was like, okay, here's what's going on. And then I said, if you don't want to be searching for an executive director during your chair year, we maybe should get this fixed now, like figure out what's going on. So then it's Don's problem and not your problem. And we met um, after the holidays and set a date for the vote. And the vote was unanimous in late February. Um, and then Gary had already, like, had already by that time assumed his new role as director of strategic planning. So in November of 2015, the man finally leaves Dallas Heritage Village and is no longer down the hall. Um, but I will say that it was very handy during that first amount, you know, period of time to have someone down the hall and say, well, what's the story on this donor? Um, when you've been in an organization for 18 years, there's a lot of institutional knowledge that, that can't easily be transferred. Um, so 
the irony of all of this, and again, this is one of those things that some colleagues are like, you did what? He's now a life board member. So in a way, he's still my boss, but not really. Anyway, so that's, that's the timeline on, on how, how we did this. And again, it was not totally smooth, but there are, of course, lessons learned throughout this process that I think could be applicable um, for any of you that are moving on. Again, whether you are retiring or clearly Gary has not actually retired. Um, that's the other big joke that he's, he doesn't know what that means. So, Gary, do you want to talk a little bit more about your view of yeah. all the fun? Yeah, I had to keep, uh, people kept coming up and saying, so what are you going to do in your retirement? And I'd say, I'm not retiring. And, and so now when I, I see my former colleagues, they say, well, how do you like retirement? And I go, I didn't retire. <laughs> ah. um, it was a transition. And that's what we're really talking about is, is leadership transition. Well, one of the things I want to say is that uh, I want to draw a distinction between uh, abstract succession plans and leadership transition which is what I think we're actually talking about. I, I'm personally not a big fan of the very elaborate and structure-bound uh, succession plans that a lot of organizations spend a lot of time drafting uh, because I'm not sure they're real useful. Um, so much of uh, leadership transitioning really depends on individual personalities and individual circumstances in a a plan that is, uh, you know, again, heavy on structure and committees and procedure drawn up two or three years ago isn't necessarily going to help you in a, uh, you know, transition at this point. So w with that, I have some uh, what I think are key points based on our uh, experiences. And the first one is if you're a, an executive director, uh, have a plan of action ready. I mean, a, and a good plan of action. One thing we all know is boards don't handle uncertainty well, and they're frightened of vacuums. So you don't want to start your conversation out by just saying, you know, I'm thinking of moving on, or it's about time to retire, because um, that's going to set off panic. Uh, you want to make sure that you've got something in mind. Uh, now I was fortunate. I actually did have something in mind. Uh, Melissa and I had already, had already talked. Uh, I knew Melissa was the right person to uh, take over. Uh, I had worked for, with Melissa for several years, and I had steadily put more administration into her six job descriptions that we had. Uh, I've watched her manage staff, uh, manage budget problems, solve other issues, and she had a management style that I was comfortable with because it was similar to mine. Uh, and the emphasis is always on you know, hiring good people and then letting them work and then supporting them. And I thought Melissa just you know, absolutely excelled at that. So the first, first step is you know, have a good plan. The second one is you've got to confide with somebody on the board, for better or for worse, and it's better if it's your chairman. And you, Melissa mentioned our, our uh, mutual friend, Don, uh, who is an excellent uh, board chair. Not perfect, but very good. And he and I had gotten to be good friends, and so I just confided in him. And I told him uh, what I thought my personal and professional needs were and what I planned to do and who I planned to elevate. Um, Don was very uh, enthusiastic about that. And 
that's the start. So you've got to confide in somebody, you've got to get somebody, and hopefully it's your chairman on board with you. Um, the, the next part of it, though, is the part where we have problems, and that's where you start filling in the rest of the board and bringing other people uh, in the process. And timing on that is absolutely crucial, and for a variety of reasons, we didn't get that right. Uh, that we had all kinds of stumbles with the timing and how we got more board members involved. Um, and the problem is if you do it too quickly, if you bring in too many board members early and you don't have a fully formulated plan, then it looks like um, it scares them. It, it's chaotic to them, that, that vacuum that they're afraid of. If you wait and do it too late, then it looks like a conspiracy. It looks like something's already happened and they weren't in on it. And if you want a good example of what that looks like, uh, check the news now on what's happening with the Strong Museum in uh, Rochester, New York, where they've had a succession plan that kind of looks like a conspiracy. It's gone, it's gone bad on them now. Uh, so you want to avoid that. Uh, the third point is if you're fortunate enough, like we were, to have financial resources to back up the plan, that's great. Uh, we, as Melissa said, had a, a grant fund uh, for my time, uh, which essentially bought half of my time to uh, work on this special project. So this enabled us to uh, have Melissa assume duties as executive director. Uh, it kept me around uh, also to help. Uh, my salary was reduced, but I was able to keep about 75% of it. So that's crucial, and that may be, frankly, the hardest part of this, getting an outside agency or a um, you know, wealthy board member, somebody who can help out on that. Uh, the fourth thing I mentioned is uh, you need to be absolutely firm in your intentions, and then you need to communicate it effectively. And titles matter, uh, as we found out, because initially my title is still going to be president, and Melissa is going to be executive director, uh, or some variation of that. But what we found out is that then people assumed that maybe I was still in charge, and you know, ultimately. And then, as Melissa mentioned, some people thought that, well, after I finish my project, I'm going to come back. So then we realized we had to be very firm and say, no, I'm not coming back, and I can't be president anymore. Uh, and that's when we adopted a new title for me, Director of uh, Strategic Projects. So it's very important that uh, at least for the perception. Melissa, I knew how this was going to work, but the titles were confusing to the board, and then uh, it, it uh, messed up what they saw as the line of authority. So we needed to take care of that. And then when I say firm, you have to be absolutely firm. Uh, I had to several times step up and say, I'm not coming back. <laughs> this is definite. This is how it's going to be. Uh, and then the final thing is to uh, make it official as quickly as you can and then announce it and get it out there. And then after that, you have to be absolutely transparent you know, with everybody, with, with uh, media, with your constituents, with your, your members. As far as lessons learned, I'm, I'm just going to run through a couple of the lessons learned and turn it back to Melissa again. The, uh, uh, she's mentioned the, the, the mistakes. Uh, you know, part of it was timing, part of it was the, uh, the board meeting where 
I'm at the ASLH meeting, and uh, what was supposed to be Melissa's inaugural budget turned into a big disaster, and that was a horrible mistake, and, uh, and you know, I still feel bad about that one. It didn't need to happen that way, but, you know, you, you make your mistakes, and then you, you move on. Um, so th three key things that I learned. One is that a, a gradual transition is ideal, I think, but it takes the right personality mix. And we were fortunate uh, in, in that we could do a gradual transition. Uh, I continued to keep my office uh, down the hall from Melissa, and I attended meetings. And Melissa and I talked all the time uh, about things. But the big part of that was that I immediately stepped back out of any kind of uh, supervision or authority on uh, anything. So Melissa and I talked a lot. I was president at meetings, but I backed out real quickly as far as any decision making. And the second part of that, part two, is that you have to have mutual trust. And we had that. Melissa and I had known each other for a long time. We trusted each other. We trusted our motives. Uh, Melissa did not worry about my presence at board meetings and staff meetings. I, in turn, worked really hard not to give her any reason to worry <laughs> about things. And then the, my third point is, especially for the director, uh, if you're in a transition that's gradual, then make sure you have something else to do. So you don't, you're not poking around and getting into things you don't need to be into anymore. Uh, we were fortunate. Uh, I had several things to do. Uh, number one, we, Melissa and I uh, agreed on certain long-standing issues that needed to be cleaned up, that I wanted to clean up, and I made those kind of special projects for me. It kind of, it, it was still uh, doing important work for the museum, but it took me out of the day-to-day -day operations. And then I was working on my research project on sustainability, and I was teaching museum administration at Baylor University. But the big thing is for the director who's on their way out, stay busy with something other than, you know, operations. Your turn. So some of this is going to echo, but I also kind of want to give the perspective of, some, the, of the person that was moving up. Um, as Gary said, we took our time. Um, the, I, you know, I, I had a conversation one time with a friend of mine who had taken over an ED position and then ended up in this political nightmare. And she said to me, well, I had asked her, I said, well, did you have any idea that this was coming? And she said, no. And she's like, but, you know, you had been at your institution for a long time, so I'm sure there weren't any surprises and there are. It's, it is different to be an executive director, but because we took our time, there was more time for me to become comfortable and become com more confident in that role. Another really key thing, and I'm, this is one of those things I'm saying to both those that are in leadership and those that are looking to continue, and maybe I'm preaching to the choir because you are sitting here, but professional development needs to be a priority for both your institution and for yourself. Um, Part of it is the network. Part of it is learning from outside your walls to see how other institutions are doing it. And I think it's important that I had a network that was built beyond Dallas and beyond Dallas Heritage Village um, by the time I assumed this role. I had been active in the State Museum Association for years. I had served on the council for the Texas Association of Museums as well as the chair of the TAM Educators Committee, so I knew a lot of people, but I also knew what was going on at other institutions. So that 
that networking, that professional development is is absolutely crucial. And I think it's important for if, if your institution, I mean, some of you may be here on your own dime. And I, I applaud that and I admire that. And you guys are the people that are probably going to stay in the field and keep going. There were years during the recession where there was no professional development dollars. And I still went to TAM because it was important. And, you know, that's part of what made me... Um, ready for this role. Um, your, your learning doesn't stop with grad school. And so, you know, as you keep going, you need to keep learning. So professional development is very important. Um, I've already mentioned Shaw. I'm going to mention again, um, that is part of the professional development. But again, um, when you have three weeks to just think about work, especially when you're thinking about work and thinking about taking over, that's a handy three weeks to have. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, we all needed that separation and that absence. And, you know, getting away from the village but still thinking about the village um, really helped inform some of those first steps that I took after that word interim was dropped. And as, as Gary's already said, open and honest communication between Gary and myself. Um, you know, occasionally we would, you know, not... I, he, Gary's like, I don't remember any missteps. But, I mean, one of the things that I had to point out to Gary was, God, Gary, like, they really like you. They don't think you're going away. Like, they think you're just going to, I guess, go out feet first. I don't know. Um, but, you know, those kinds of things, I was able to point those out to him. And, of course, he was always there with advice on that whole, like, board management thing because that's very different. Um, what didn't work, again, board communication was clearly a failure in the beginning, um, I really wish, I still wish this, um, that I, I was able to present myself to them as an executive director before I was named executive director. Um, Gary and I both pushed for this, but Don just didn't want to do this, and I don't really know exactly why, um, but I know it would have helped um, speed the confidence level and those board members that were not totally in favor of me becoming executive director if I had perhaps had that opportunity. Or at least it would have helped them get to know me on a different level. Um, I also don't think either of us fully realized that a large part of the board resistance would stem from the fact that I was young. I was 34 when this started, um, which means I'm not there anymore. But anyway, and female. Um, and the interesting thing about the gender aspect is the people that seem to have the biggest issue with my being female were older women. So that was one of those things that we just didn't seem coming. Clearly, there's not a lot I can do about the fact that I was 34 and female. Um, obviously, I'm not 34 anymore, so that's changed. Um, but that was something we did not see coming. Um, and, and so that's just something to be aware of. For those of you that are, are female and in the audience, it, that, that sexism is definitely still there. Um, and you just don't know where it's going to pop up all the time. So lessons for all of you that may be thinking about this or maybe you're just hoping that someone will retire and you can move up. We know that our situation was unique. Like, we do know this. Like, we actually like each other. Not all boss and, you know, that doesn't always happen. Um, I had grown a lot through my various roles at DHV, and I had a boss that recognized that, and I had a boss that allowed me to grow. And I also know that that is not always possible in institutions. Like a lot, and I think that's why there is so much movement, is you hit the ceiling, and then you don't go anywhere, and you get frustrated, and you move on. 
Um, Gary was the kind of boss where if I had an idea, most of the time he said yes. And then, of course, the ideas didn't always work, but he said yes. The automatic was yes. The automatic was not no. Um, and I think that is one of the things that's special. You know, we trusted each other. He got it out of my way, but I also continued to come to him with questions. Um, another thing that makes our situation rather unique as far as how quickly after all this turmoil I was able to really, I guess, cement my leadership is that right after our transition, our neighborhood started going through, through some really major changes. Um, we have been a virtual island for most of our existence, and now there's major urban redevelopment coming or under construction. So, for example, a brewery is currently under construction across the street. Um, there's, there's apartments and um, townhomes and an art incubator and all kinds of amazing things coming. And what that meant was it gave me some very early chances to demonstrate leadership and set a very different vision, and that helped to get those last few board members um, fully behind me. The other way that helped is because of all this stuff, I was out in the community a lot trying to figure out what was going on and how that might impact the museum. And so because of that, it was also a very quick transition with the larger community because I was so present. What was fun with that is that a lot of those people didn't realize I had been at DHV for so long. They just saw me as the new person from DHV. And so then they try to, like, tell me the history of whatever civic project had been going on and be like, no, that's not right. And then they were surprised, and that was fun. Um, so if you're starting to think about transition as, as a leader, or if you want to someday move on up, First, and again, I've said this before, I'll say it again, I will preach this until the day I die, build a network. Find a mentor, be a mentor, make professional development a priority. If there's a year your museum can't afford a conference, find a way to go and hang on to those relationships. Um, my is for me is right there. We talk every two or three weeks for at least two hours. Um, and the interesting thing about her is she took on a new role exactly the same time that my interim work got dropped. And so we were able to really compare that. And what's great is because she's in Illinois, that means I can use names and don't have to come up with pseudonyms when I'm talking about crazy people. So again, that's another reason why national networks are important because it's easier to tell the stories and, and get the advice. Um, don't be afraid to delegate. This is really hard for me, and I'll admit that. I sometimes think that I can do things better than anyone else. Um, it's probably not true. Um, as I moved up the ladder, I had to learn that myself. And, of course, Gary was very good at delegating things to me. I think part of it was because he was tired of dealing with staff issues. Um, but I had to learn, let other people do things, too. And that did take some time. And I will admit, as, as the former educator, there are two programs that I do remain involved in at Dallas Heritage Village. And I have a good relationship with my educator. Um, and it's a loose involvement, but I can't quite let it go. And part of that is because um, sometimes I need to be reminded about why we're doing this. Um, so I do still run our museum's book club. And then I still hang out with our teen volunteer program, the Junior Historians. But I only do the fun stuff with them. Um, but I think that's important, and I know that that could also have been an awkward situation for Mandy because, again, I'm her boss, and I used to do this. So that that's challenging, but that learning to delegate and trusting other people to keep the work going is a really important part of any transition process. 
Um, talk about it as much as possible and make sure you get the message straight. Um, you want to make sure you've got a clear message so everybody's saying basically the same thing. Um, again, that's going to cut down on rumors and gossip and innuendo and all those other things. And again, timing can be really important on that communication also, um, especially if you're promoting within. You know, people knew me. So we had to make sure we let everyone know as close to the same time as possible. And I think that's important to remember that you've got many constituencies. And yes, the board is first, but your staff needs to be five minutes later. Um, and of course, the volunteers and the community, all that. Also, be prepared for landmines. Um, they pop up in the most unexpected places. You know, the best laid plans, we all know that, but I think it's important to remember. Um, also, lay in a supply of wine or your beverage of choice, because there's going to be days where you're going to need it. Um, and then finally, and we, Gary touched on this as well, get creative on how to fund the transition. A leadership transition is expensive no matter if it's planned or unplanned, but it's going to cost you money. It's going to be smoother if there is some sort of planning in place. Um, you know, if somebody leaves suddenly, what are you going to do? But no matter what, there's got to be um, some money there. But again, we, we, that's how we did it. And I really, we could have used a bit more bridge funding because we were pretty top-heavy salary, administrative salary-wise for a little while. Um, but it is expensive. And I think it's important to acknowledge that staff are money. And if you're doing a leadership transition, there's going to be a cost. Whether you're hiring an interim executive director or whatever, there will be a cost there somehow, somewhere. And your board needs to be aware of that. And there's also probably going to be a slight dip in fundraising during that transition as well as people get to know the new executive director and as the new executive director gets to know the donors. And of course, Unfortunately for us, we had a development transition as well at the same time. Um, so the, the board needs to be prepared that there's going to be, it's not going to be completely smooth financially. Um, and having that cushion is really important. So Gary's going to wrap up with the uh, four best or five. Are we up to five now? Four, four worst excuses on why not to do leadership transition planning, and then we're going to open up for questions and discussion. So, Gary, what are the four worst, most common excuses for not doing this? You all may feel free to add yours. And, and if anybody is, if I'm quoting anybody in this room, you can raise your hand and say, that was me. <laughs> okay, the four worst excuses. <laughs> yeah. Uh, number one. I don't have anybody on my staff uh, who I can nurture in the leadership. I mean, I have good staff, but I, there's no future director material on my staff. I think that's a, that's a bad excuse. Uh, number two, we're too small. I don't, I don't, have, any, I don't have anybody I can hand my job off to. Uh, number three, they won't be able to replace me. They'd have to hire two people to do what I do. How many of y'all have heard that one? <laughs> <laughs> and then finally... Uh, for the baby boomers. I only have a couple years left until retirement. I'm not going anywhere until it's time. And then I guess the 4B would be, uh, I only have a couple years until retirement. I don't want to bring it up now because they might ask me to leave now. So. And, and also, I've also heard um, baby boomer executive directors say, well, I don't care what happens to this institution after I leave. Yeah. And my response to that is you spent 10 years of your life here. Why? 
Why, why aren't you doing something about this? So, obviously, our situation is a little unique um, and special, but I don't think that means it can't be replicated anywhere else. Um, does anybody have any questions, conversations, horrifying things you've heard about succession planning, great stories about it done well or done not well? In the back. <laughs> get get the paper back. <laughs> put me on put me on the spot, huh? Um, and and you all can jump in on this. I, I don't have anybody on my staff that I think is leadership material. I, to me, that kind of speaks to you should have better staff. Uh, maybe you haven't done a good job of helping develop them uh, through uh, you know professional development. Uh, maybe some bad decisions were made. I don't know. I don't want to sound judgmental, but that just doesn't seem like a great excuse to me. The, the second one, uh, we're too small. Uh, yeah, if you're a one or two person museum, maybe you don't have somebody you can nurture like I was able to do, but uh, there are other organizations in your town, perhaps, uh, or in the network that Melissa's talking about where you can help uh, cultivate somebody and, and bring somebody in. Uh, they won't be able to replace me. They'd have to hire two people to do what I do. That says ego. Yeah, I, I just, yeah. Exactly. Again, putting the institution first, I think, is one of the thing, the underlying things. The, the people that are making these excuses are not putting the institution first. They're not putting the good of the institution first. They're putting their own career first or their own ego first. Um, and I think that's one of the main reasons why what we did worked is because both of us were putting the institution first, um, and that makes a difference. Yeah, that answer would go for number four. I only have a couple years till retirement. I'm hanging on. Uh, that also is not, not putting the institution first, I think. So I had written a couple of grants um, as director of education, and that certainly helped. And I had also done grant reading, grant review. Um, occasionally, IMLS will put out a call for grant reviewers. Um, I highly recommend doing that because that will teach you better than any seminar what a good grant looks like. The other thing that I started doing once I got the role, I didn't have time to do it before, was... Um, the Association for Fundraising Professionals, the membership is incredibly expensive in that group. However, most regions will do a, and the conference is incredibly expensive. It's probably double the cost of ASLH. But at least in the Dallas area, and I know they do other, they do regional one-day conferences that are very affordable. Um, I think it's like $100. And I've done that twice and the only reason why I haven't done it three times was because there was a conflict on one of those dates that was one of the most um I learned more in that one day than any other conference one day experience I've ever had I guess part of it was because I didn't know much so like the bar was pretty low um but that helped a lot and of course we had you know in the time that I've been executive director which is now two and a half years we're on our second development manager 
So that's not ideal. And of course, there's a whole other thing about development moving on quickly. Um, we also, um, that rental property that um, was moving out that gave us a six months notice, um, the other nice thing that happened for us that is rare for many, many, many reasons, we put it on the market. And during the time it was on the market, the price went up 50% because there was all that neighborhood redevelopment going on. And so because we made a lot more than we thought we were going to make on it, we put most of that money into our endowment, but took some of it to do a few key projects, and one of them was to hire a development consultant. Um, and again, that's where that cushion is helpful um, if you're able to do that. And again, that's hard. That's really, really hard and really, really special. But you know, we did what's called a development audit, which is just a broad overview of what you're doing development-wise. And then that was so successful that we ended up hiring them on a coaching kind of basis for five or six months. We just wrapped that up. We have completely reformatted our membership program and done a few other things. So I feel better about the fundraising stuff. But, yeah, I think the, the first thing is to get comfortable with the grant writing. And then I think the other thing is, and, again, I know that some executive directors do not like having lower-level staff interact with board members or donors, but if you have the opportunity, you take it. And I've also heard plenty of people go, oh, I'm terrified of the board. I'm like, get over it. They're just people. They're people with checkbooks, but they're just people. And so I think that's the other key is to start getting comfortable um, with board members that are often donors um, just so that you're not in that panic mode. And I think that made a difference with our transition, too, because it wasn't one of those things where I showed up the first executive board meeting and they were like, who's this girl? And I know that there's some of my colleagues that that would have been the case at their institutions. Yes. Absolutely. And that was one of my concerns. I mean, that was one of the things that I brought up at the very beginning was like, don't you want to at least see what else is out there? Like, I may be the right person for the job, but I may not be. Um, and I think, again, that's part of the larger story is if you do need to look from outside, you still need time to do it. And, and if there can be a way, you know, there, there's a, the Texas Association of Museums um, recently hired a new executive director, and they kind of followed our model, but it also did not promote from within. So um, Ruthann, the previous ED, is still there and in a different role, and there is a new executive director, and, you know, that is certainly possible. It, it just, you know, you've, we focus on that because this is one museum story. Any, you want to add to that? You could just, do you want to, we can show. Um, it, it, it really depends on where the institution is, you know, in its life, um, and that that's part of the conversation that needs to to take place. Frankly, and yeah, Melissa's right. We uh, we could have posted posted the job and then gone through the search process. I, I think in the discussion, uh, my feeling at the time and my uh, discussion with our board chair and other key people is that. Um, we didn't want to give up a year of doing a, a transition of uh, doing a job search and everything's on hold and then getting somebody new. And it, at that stage in our life, we just didn't feel like we needed the, 
the, the emphasis was more on uh, transitioning, and we felt like we had somebody very capable in-house rather than uh, do the, the disruption and the kind of interruption of you know, work that happens when you bring in somebody completely new. And it's not to say that's not a legitimate process, it's just that that's not what we needed at that time. Yes? I'm sure it would, um, but you know. It also the thing is there. The the key here is to actually start thinking about it and doing it and and giving those potential candidates some opportunities to show their leadership skills. Um, and you know, there's different ways to do that. Um, obviously, in some ways, me being named associate director and having all staff report to me um, was a good test to see whether or not I really could handle the larger institution. So, you know, it, you know, we're definitely a solidly mid-sized institution. Um, it's hard for me to think about, you know, institutions that have 300 employees. Um, but yeah, I think that you know, there's still ways to do a similar process, but you've got to give people a chance to try. Maybe they know they're, they're being tried out and maybe they don't know, but there's, you know, I, I know that, you know, good managers give their employees an opportunity to shine and see if they shine. Um, and that, that's a really good indication. And so that's certainly something that, you know, Gary had done with me. I had done with some of my staff just to see um, with, you know, they didn't know they were not under review, but, you know, this, if, if you do this, maybe you'll get to go up here. You know, we did not um, promote from within right away for my job. So, you know, it, it took some time. So, <laughs> I'm not, Kat, I'm not sure I understand. Uh, he did not give me a giant notebook, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Is that what you're kind of asking? Uh, how do I distill and pass on? Yeah. Uh, Melissa's right. I did not give her a giant notebook. I don't know. But part of the what made it easier is she had worked there for 10 years and knew the institutional history and everything. So uh, I guess, uh, you know, we kind of did the oral tradition here uh, <laughs> of passing on the knowledge in, in that sense, really. Well, 
that was the, where the advantage of, of, of my being around uh, because uh, there was a lot of that. You know, Gary, what's the story on this, or was there ever any follow-up on you know this from five years ago? And and uh, we both kind of joke about the fact that the board then named me a, a you know a life board member. But that was uh, you know on the serious side, I think that was part of the idea that uh, institutional knowledge. Uh, you know, I'm I'm there still. I you know I have a reason to. Uh, you know, attend uh, board meetings, and, and Melissa recently put me on a committee uh, involved with uh, neighborhood uh, development because of my history of working with, you know, the properties and so forth. So I guess you, you can say there wasn't any official distillation and handing off, but it's kind of ongoing. But I do think it's important to think about, and this is something that we're working on a little bit with our staff below us, there's that old question of if you get hit by a bus, is anybody going to be able to pick up your projects and keep them going? And I think that's something that, I mean, obviously we don't really have time to make everything like clear and lay it all out, but I think that is part of transition planning is that, you know, if something were to happen, could people figure out where the key things are? Because, you know, obviously we had that long period, but that doesn't always happen for a variety of reasons. You know, it's it probably not being hit by a bus. You know, there's, you know, boards go rogue and fire people and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, could somebody go into your office and sort of make sense of what's going on. And I think that's a question that at any level you need to ask yourself because anything could happen. Our, our former development director, you know, landed in the hospital very suddenly with cancer and didn't come back to work for a while. And Gary had to, to step in and figure out. And of course she was a woman that kept everything, which that was its own challenge. Um, but I think that's something that everyone needs to think about in their job is if something were to happen, you know, is, is, could others carry on the work? Would the institution keep running? Is any, anybody here in the middle of a transition right now you want to talk about? Anything you want to volunteer what's going on that we could all learn from? Do this, this is actually being recorded. I wonder. <laughs> I know. Let's see. Can, can you come up? We're going to have people come up and impart of their personal experiences here now. Can you maybe identify who you are? Or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if it's okay, I'd prefer not. Okay. Um, our executive director has made plans to, or made plans to retire about five years out, and I think we are kind of about the two and a half year mark. And the top three administrative positions, excuse me, there's top, there's five administrative positions, and five of them will probably, five administrative positions, three of them will probably be retiring between the next. Um, five to seven years. So we are, are looking at a major shift in this organization. And 
uh, much in line with this proposal or this topic. We have a baby boomer retiree and a Gen X transitional process that was established. They created a new position called deputy director, which was very likely had been needed long before the transition, but it's unclear as to whether or not that position is going to stay in effect once the transition is complete. And I think for our organization, there could have been a lot more discussion. There, most of the information was kind of infiltrated through the grapevine, which also came with a lot of um, bad information and misunderstandings. And it's, but it's a large institution and for, you know, the likelihood of getting everybody in the same room and saying this is what's going to happen next, that would have been a challenge in and of itself. But um, things are going fine, but it was bumpy in the beginning and I think it's still a little uncertain and I personally feel that five years is too long. Um, and... <laughs> We have a, a major building project that's going underway, and that's another thing that there's, timing is key. And some of this could have been avoided, some of it couldn't have been, but it's uh, difficult. Change is hard. That's what it, and I think you just kind of have to be honest that it is, it's hard, it's gonna be hard, and anyone that's gone through transitions and leadership uh, whatever your field is, knows that there's a lot of uncertainty and it takes a toll on the employees and you lose employees who are not willing to to ride out change that they are not scripting. And it's, you just, trying to maintain morale, I think, is one of the things that we have really struggled with. Yeah, I think it is important to acknowledge that change is hard and change is scary and a lot of people are scared of it. And that is going to make a profound difference. And, and hopefully, if you're within, you'll be able to, to see who may be most likely to have the biggest challenge with that and help coach and maybe treat them a little bit differently. But that may not be always possible. You may not have time to do that. But I, I think it is important to acknowledge that, yes, change is, is terrifying for a lot of people. Other people embrace it. But, you know, we spend a lot of time at conferences like this talking about change is good. And then we go back to our office and we're like, change is terrible. Change is terrible. <laughs> very good session. I appreciate it very much. Uh, I've known Gary for a very long time, uh, back into the 90s at least, I think, and before that. Uh, and uh, I was kind of aware of what was going on at... Um, at Old City Park, and being much younger than Gary, I didn't think it really Actually, I'm older than Gary. It, it didn't uh, apply to me so much, but uh, uh, I thought about it a while, and um, I took the opportunity uh, a year ago, uh, a local area foundation in our area, Waco, Texas, uh, put on a um, uh, secession planning uh, seminar. They brought in somebody from the outside, uh, uh, to lead the um, uh, session. So I tried to get the president and the president-elect to go, and only the, the current president went, and our associate director. And uh, we sat through that, and I think they came away with uh, a feeling that uh, transition was good. That was my strategy anyway, <laughs> was to make the board president aware a little bit of that. And uh, about six months ago, I had lunch with the uh, 
the current president and now the, the, the previous president who went to the seminar. And uh, we talked about transition planning uh, a little bit, and that led to the executive committee meeting, which was about two weeks ago. And uh, we had an executive session after that and kind of openly discussed things. And uh, I kind of set a time frame for uh, my retirement at that particular uh, meeting. Uh, and then the, the president of the board and the past president were both aware of that. And um, uh, talked about how that would transition a little bit. And I'll probably be the director for about two more years uh, until I hit a landmark birthday. And uh, shortly after that will be my uh, anniversary at the museum of, of coming there as executive director. And uh, after that, I'll probably assume the title of like director emeritus or I like your strategy title, but director emeritus or something like that uh, for about a year or so. And uh, uh, the two uh, president and the past president are convinced that they do not want to look outside that uh, the associate director probably uh, will assume that position. Uh, the current president said, oh, I've been involved in so many searches in Waco that have gone bad. Uh, I would rather have somebody we know than bring somebody in from the outside because when that doesn't work out, it can be a mess. But that was his feeling. And so I thought that was you know, good thinking on his part since it coincided with mine a little bit. And um, that transition will take place in the, over the next two to three years. And um, hopefully she's as well prepared as Melissa. We'll, we'll try to make that happen. We have been trying to make that happen. We can form a club. That's right. That's right. There, there, there's another uh, major nonprofit in Dallas that is actually did a very similar succession plan um, to us, Downtown Dallas Inc. And um, that particular woman, Courtney, and I have drinks about every two months. And part of what we talk about is um, she had been at her organization for about 10 years as well before moving up, never thought she would be the boss. Um, and just some of the, the interesting challenges of being active in local politics as a young woman, because that's a whole other um, thing right now in Dallas. So having peers, I think this is going to be a thing, um, and it's starting to be a thing, because we're seeing more and more examples of these, instead of the sudden, oh my God, our director's gone, and it's going to take us a year to search and find someone, and institutions floundering. I hope that there are a lot more cases like the Dr. Pepper Museum and Downtown Dallas, Inc., and the Texas Association of Museums. Obviously, these are all Texas examples, and hopefully they're happening in other places besides Texas. Um, but it does make a real difference for the good of the institution and the good of the community. Well, I don't see how someone can spend 15, 16 years, 20 years at an institution and really not care enough about what happens, you know, when they're leaving, uh, to be able to do that. That's important. So. Sure. How old is your associate director and where in the organization? Uh, my associate director um, got her master's degree at Baylor and at 22 years old uh, became uh, a very low-level worker uh, at the museum and an assistant to uh, somebody in, in one of the programming areas. And over the last um, 15 years or so has moved up uh, to the director of interpretation eventually. And uh, she's actually an adjunct professor along with Gary at Baylor University. 
and uh, teaches there and uh, manages a very large portion of the staff, but is involved really in all of the other aspects of it. Uh, I mean, we talk about the fundraising, we talk about the financial management areas, particularly those were the areas probably that she's not if she would say, well, gee, I'm scared of taking over those, that would probably be what she said. I don't think she's afraid of taking over those. But, you know, we still have two years to really manage that. But, uh, you know, she's uh, worked with me and worked with the organization for, for quite a few years and knows, I think, all of the ins and outs of it uh, as much as anyone can. I think we have time for one more question or story if anybody wants to... Yes. Okay. Come on up. <laughs> By the way, Jack, you understand that the translation for the word emeritus means no pay? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'm at a mid-sized museum. We have a staff about 35. And um, we're, we brought on a new president in November of 14. We had done a national search. Um, everything was managed by our executive committee. The rest of the board and the staff were um, left completely out of any information around the process. Uh, even the sitting president at the time wasn't kept informed about anything. And um, so when uh, the new president was selected, um, they hadn't communicated with our staff, the organization she was at in a different city, puts out a press release. Ooh, that's yeah, so, <laughs> so, and so of course our local media is all up in arms because why didn't they get the scoop? And um, so, uh, and also through the um, beginning the transition, um, the our board chair. Uh, our, our both president, uh, the outgoing and the incoming, came from outside museum administration in their previous lives, and our board chair made a point of saying that they didn't want a museum person to take the job, which, after hearing that a number of times in our first meeting with the new president, I, I couldn't hold back anymore and let him know how insulting that was to those of us who are museum professionals working in, in a museum. <laughs> so it was bumpy. First, and then I think our outgoing president also was not quite ready to leave. You know, we just had a really big accomplishment. We'd just done some great stuff, and um, she had gone through her own health issues, which I think was her impetus for leaving. But she kind of kept popping up around, which made it rather uncomfortable for the the new president. So, um, so as I said, we're almost two years into it, and it's still a little bumpy and rocky throughout. So I guess to just reiterate the, the you know, difficulty of change, you just kind of got to hang on. And, but I think, too, with that, I think our staff could have used some more support and a little more respect on the front end from our board. Yeah, a, a neighboring institution um, hired a new executive director, and the board refused to tell the staff anything about the new ED, and it was about six, week from, six weeks from, like, we have a new ED to when the ED, you know, became apparent. And it was one of those things, a good friend works there, and she's like, well, we have a pronoun now. It's a she, and I'm like, that's all you... And they ended up finding out through a local charity blog the name of their new executive director. And most of the board found out through that same blog 
the name of the new executive director. And then that ED lasted eight whole months. Um, and then they hired an interim before hiring the new. So, yeah, that one organization in the two and a half years that I've been executive director, I've had three different EDs and an interim to work with for that peer institution. That's not right. Um, so, obviously, this conversation can and should continue because this is going to be an ongoing issue for a while. Um, I will say, for those of you that are part of my generation, um, when I go to meetings, and it doesn't matter if it's a museum meeting, a nonprofit meeting, an arts meeting, I am typically the youngest ED in the room by like 20 years. And though I am young, I am not a prodigy, which means things are going to start shifting. Um, and we need to be ready. So it's, it's not just a matter of baby boomers letting go. Um, it's us making sure that we're ready. So we do have a handout up here with a couple of resources just on general leadership and succession planning along with both Gary's and my contact information. Um, this is something that I think we are both passionate about and want it to be better. And um, we are happy to talk with any of you about that, even if it's just to um, complain a little bit or just that venting that is so necessary um, sometime in the field. So thank you very, very much for coming um, and enjoy your last session of, of ASLH. So again, we've got resources up here and thank you very much. And, 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 ASLH is going to be in my home state next year, Austin, which is three hours from Dallas. But, and also just so you know, it probably will not be quite as pleasant temperature-wise um, as it has been in Detroit, but you guys can handle it. <laughs>